Good morning. Some of you who were here last fall may be aware that in one of his sermons, I think um, one of his Roman sermons, Dave Stevens referred to me as a robot. Now, I, I didn't actually hear him do this. Um, I was in the nursery taking care of my infant daughter at the time, you know, typical robot stuff. But <laughs> I'm given to understand he didn't actually call me a robot himself, per se. Rather, he attributed to Nate Hubbard the claim that I was a robot. And I guess Nate was concerned that being angry that my cover was blown, I would exterminate him or something. So after the service, he made sure to clarify to me that he didn't actually say that and Dave had made it up. And then he went on to say, to be fair though, when you're as emotional as Dave is, everyone probably seems like a robot. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> that is true, Nate didn't say that either. Dave and I are just having a proxy war through Nate, as it turns out. Um, but I want to start this morning by talking about literature, specifically detective and mystery literature. There are multiple subgenres which within the genre of detective and mystery literature, but my favorite is probably the super intelligent detective. And of course, the quintessential example of this is Sherlock Holmes. Very good. I really enjoy the Sherlock Holmes stories when I was, I don't know, probably 12 or 13. Stephanie got me a copy of the complete Sherlock Holmes from the library, and I read it cover to cover. Some of you who were here last fall for John Shutt's sermon on apologetics may recall that he showed this clearly photoshopped <laughs> photo of me supposedly reading Reasonable Faith as a child. I actually have a copy of the original, though. And as you can see, I was actually reading the, that copy of the complete Sherlock Holmes. I've actually introduced Anastasia to Sherlock Holmes as well. Uh, <laughs> Uh, as you can see, she's making good progress, even though that book is probably bigger than she is. So how many of you have read a fair number of Sherlock Holmes stories? Most of you. So for those of you that have, maybe you've noticed this, but oftentimes the solution to a Sherlock Holmes mystery doesn't hinge on some clue or piece of evidence that is not revealed until the end. Many times in a Sherlock Holmes mystery, you as the reader are given access to more or less the same set of facts that Holmes has. However, if you're like me, this doesn't mean that you solve the mystery before the end when Holmes reveals a solution. If you're like me, you're flummoxed right up until the end. And why is this? Why is it that Holmes solves the mystery, but you, the reader, along with Dr. Watson and Scotland Yard, do not? Well, I think usually this is because, along with Dr. Watson and Scotland Yard, the reader has made unconscious, unwarranted assumptions that preclude seeing how the pieces of the puzzle fit together. You may think you're not making any unwarranted assumptions or ruling out any possible solution, but oftentimes you are. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had a real knack for writing stories that stymie at least most of us in this way. And I actually think, this is sort of an aside, but this is Josh's opinions on literature, so you're welcome, some bonus content. I think this is one of the hallmarks of really, really good literature in this genre of mystery literature. Compared to other super intelligent detective stories like, say, Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot, I enjoy the Poirot stories, but it seems to me that far too often the solution to a Poirot mystery relies on something that Poirot knows that you don't and that you don't get that clue until the very end, such that you have no legitimate shot to solve the mystery. I think that is less often the case in Sherlock Holmes because, of course, the point of the super intelligent detective is he's supposed to be smarter than you. You're supposed to in theory, be able to solve the crime, but you don't, and then you're impressed that he does. 
So anyway, that's, like I said, that's, I've never actually heard, um, I didn't get that from my detective and mystery literature class in college, but at least not from the professor, but that was one of the conclusions I drew. Um, all of this leads, though, to my topic for this morning, which is a particular type of literature in the Bible. And with daylight savings time today, I figured it would be important to pick something really gripping and exciting that would keep us all awake. So I went with something much, much more exciting than mystery literature. So hold on to your chairs, ladies and gentlemen, because we're going to be talking about genealogies. So we're going to be looking specifically at the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, but in our analysis of these, we will end up discussing another, a number of other genealogical passages and statements. Now, my wife is a genetic counselor, as you know, and so she spends a significant portion of each day constructing family histories, which are really just a specific type of genealogy. So she might actually think this topic sounds interesting. But for most of the rest of us, I'm going to guess that this topic holds little fascination. In fact, to make matters worse, not only does it seem boring at first glance, it probably also seems unnecessary. At the end of the day, a genealogy is just a list of names and a line of descent, right? Sure, there are nerds like my wife that are professionally obligated to care about these things, but whether we care about them or not, we probably all think we understand them well enough already. Why should we spend an entire sermon talking about them? Well, ironically, I think it is precisely because we already think we have an adequate understanding of genealogies that we need to talk about them. As a result of the fact that we think we understand them already, when we read genealogies in the Bible, we may be subconsciously reading in our contemporary assumptions of what a genealogy is and how it should work. And, the, and much like the assumptions we make when reading a Sherlock Holmes mystery that prevent us from solving the case, the assumptions we bring to our understanding of genealogies may be preventing us from understanding them in the manner intended by the biblical authors. For example, most of us probably take it for granted that a genealogy should be continuous and without gaps between generations, or if there are gaps, at the very least, these should be clearly indicated. However, this assumption does not accord with the biblical evidence, and there are good reasons to think that the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 are not continuous and do omit generations. We're going to jump into these reasons in just one minute. Before we do that, though, I'm going to give us a very quick overview of the genealogies. And before I do that, I need to add two disclaimers. One, I don't like PowerPoint, um, but after both Wendell and Denny independently suggested to, that I put together an accompanying PowerPoint for the sermon, I was compelled to acknowledge the merits of that suggestion. But there is a decent chance I'm going to forget to advance the slides at some point. So if at any point what I'm saying seems really, really out of sync with what you're seeing on the slideshow, let me know. All right, two, we can't talk about Old Testament genealogies without getting into a whole bunch of Jewish names that I have no idea how to pronounce. However, I'm betting that most of you don't know how to pronounce them either. So I'm just going to pick an option and act confident about it, and we're going to roll with it. But I wouldn't put too much stock in that. If you really want to know how they should be pronounced, I would ask Josh Miles. So on to the genealogies. Genesis 5 contains a genealogy that spans from Adam to Noah. The genealogy follows a specific pattern. For example, Genesis chapter 5, verse 6 reads, When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. The other listings in this genealogy generally follow this pattern with a bit of additional information for a few individuals. 
However, the listing for Noah in verse 32 diverges from this. It simply tells us, after Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is how Genesis 5 ends, and in chapter 6, we find the story of the flood. Jumping now to Genesis 11, verses 10 through 26 contain a genealogy that spans from Shem to Abram. This genealogy also follows a specific pattern. For example, Genesis 11, verses 12 and 13 read, When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. The other listings follow this pattern, with the exception of the last one in verse 26, which tells us, After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Genesis 11, verses 27 through 32, then go on to give us some additional information about Terah's family line, and in chapter 12, the story of Abram begins. So these are the genealogies in question. To our contemporary eyes and ears, there don't appear to be any indications of gaps or missing generations. As such, we might be tempted to think that these genealogies should be presumed to be continuous until shown otherwise. However, to assume this would be to ignore significant biblical evidence to the contrary. Genealogies in the Bible, it turns out, are not generally exhaustive and without gaps. And this is not a new discovery in Old Testament scholarship. It's been well known for a long time. Old Testament scholar and Princeton professor William Henry Green, who was a staunch defender of inerrancy, wrote this in the late 1800s. It can scarcely be necessary to adduce proof to one who has even a superficial acquaintance with the genealogies of the Bible that these are frequently abbreviated by the omission of unimportant names. In fact, abridgment is the general rule induced by the indisposition of the sacred writers to encumber their pages with more names than were necessary for their immediate purpose. I love that quote. Um, and I will readily acknowledge that the first time I read this, I was forced to conclude that my knowledge of the genealogies of the Bible was less than superficial by Professor Green's standards, because I did want to see evidence that abridgment is the general rule in biblical genealogies. But the evidence is abundantly available, and we're going to look at a few examples. As we know, Matthew chapter 1 contains a genealogy of Christ. Matthew organizes this genealogy into three blocks of 14 generations. Matthew 1.17 reads, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. However, when we compare Matthew's genealogy against Kings and Chronicles, we see that in order to preserve this 14-generation scheme, Matthew omits four names. In verse 8, Matthew's genealogy jumps from Jehoram to Uzziah, leaving out Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Likewise, in verse 11, Jehoiakim is omitted between Josiah and Jeconiah. These are just the omissions we are able to identify thanks to parallel genealogies elsewhere in Scripture. It is possible that Matthew omits other generations of which we are not aware. We should also note that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew truncates his genealogy even further condensing it into the following statement. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Clearly then, Matthew had no qualms about omitting generations in genealogical statements. Another example is 1 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 24. This verse tells us that during the reign of King David, Shubael, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, was ruler of the treasuries. Obviously, 
a grandson of Moses would not still have been living at the time of King David, which means that we have a number of generations that are being omitted. Similarly, 1 Chronicles 26, 31 tells us that at the same time during the reign of King David, Jeriah was chief of the Hebronites. When we compare this with the genealogy in 1 Chronicles 23, we find that Jeriah was the son of Hebron and that Hebron was the son of Kohath and Kohath was the son of Levi. Again, no great grandson of Levi would have been living at the time of David, which means that again, we have another number of generations being left out of this genealogy. In Ezra, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, the genealogy of Ezra is given. However, when we compare this genealogy to the one in 1 Chronicles 6, we find that six consecutive names have been omitted between Azariah and Mariah. We have another genealogy that clearly contains gaps in Ezra chapter 8. In the ESV translation of Ezra 8, verses 1 and 2, we read the following. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush. If no generations are being skipped in these genealogical statements, that would mean that a great-grandson of Aaron, a grandson of Aaron, and a son of David returned with Ezra to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Obviously, this is not possible. In recognition of the fact that generations are being skipped here, the NIV instead translates Ezra 8.2 of the descendants of Phineas Gershom, of the descendants of Ithamar Daniel, of the descendants of David Hattush. All right, another example where generations have been omitted from a genealogy is the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, which can be found in Exodus 6. I won't read the entire passage. Instead, I'll simplify it down to the direct links between Levi and Moses and Aaron for you. Levi fathered Kohath, who fathered Amram, who fathered Moses and Aaron. Given that Levi was Jacob's son, this means that according to this genealogy, there were four generations from Jacob to Moses. In contrast, the genealogy of Joshua in 1 Chronicles 7 lists 11 generations between Jacob and Joshua. Joshua was certainly a bit younger than Moses, but I don't think this difference in age can explain there being 11 generations from Jacob to Joshua and only four between Jacob and Moses. Instead, it appears that again we have an example where some generations have been omitted from a genealogy. And this conclusion is strengthened when we consider that Levi, Levi's son Kohath was born before Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Exodus 12.40 says that the Israelites spent 430 years in Egypt, and Exodus 7.7 says that Moses was 80 years old at the time of the Exodus. So this would mean that Moses was born more than 350 years after Kohath, and this suggests that Kohath could not possibly have been Moses' grandfather. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, does offer an alternate reading of Exodus 12.40 that says the Israelites spent 430 years in Egypt and Canaan. And since Abraham left Haran 215 years after the descent into Egypt, or excuse me, before the descent into Egypt, this shortens the Israelites' stay in Egypt to 215 years. And this would put Moses' birth around 135 years after the birth of Kohath, which is at least possible. However, the Septuagint's reading here has not generally found favor among Old Testament scholars. And it also conflicts with other passages 
in the Bible that indicate Israel spent around 400 years in Egypt. And this also leaves us needing to fit the 11 generations between Jacob and Joshua into this vastly shortened time span. Thus, the most likely explanation of all of this is simply that the genealogy of Moses and Aaron in Exodus 6 omits multiple generations. One final example is the genealogy from Perez to David in Ruth chapter 4. This genealogy lists 10 generations from Perez to David. With information given in Genesis and elsewhere in the Old Testament, we are able to date the birth of Perez to around 1877 B.C. David's birth can be dated to around 1039 B.C. This means that if there are no generations being skipped, the average age of a father in this genealogy when his son was born would have been 93 years old. All right, so on the basis of these considerations, Professor Green states, nothing can be plainer, therefore, than that in the usage of the Bible, to bear and to beget are used in a wide sense to indicate descent without restriction to immediate offspring. This may seem like a very safe conclusion from the evidence we just surveyed, which is not exhaustive, by the way. There are other examples. But this claim is still disputed by some. For example, Professor J. Paul Tanner asserts that of the 170 times in Genesis that the Hebrew verb for beget is used in the active stem, and this would include its use in these genealogies, it always means that a man is the literal father of a son, not merely an ancestor. This claim, however, is quite clearly circular. The only way that Professor Tanner can know that this verb always refers to a literal father-son relationship in Genesis is if he knows that there are no gaps in the genealogies. And this is, of course, precisely the question at hand. Larry Pierce and Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis make a much bolder claim. They write, nowhere, I'm quoting here, nowhere in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word for beget used in any other way than to mean a single generation, e.g. father-son or mother-daughter relationship, end quote. So this claim is at least not circular. However, it is quite clearly false. Deuteronomy 4 verse 25 begins, when you have children and grandchildren, and the verb translated have here in our modern English translations is the same underlying Hebrew verb. Obviously, one cannot father one's grandchildren because that would make them one's children. So we must conclude that the relevant Hebrew verb can be used to indicate descent as opposed to direct parentage. So at this point, we've established that despite what we may automatically assume based on our contemporary understandings of genealogies, there is no prima facie reason to suppose that the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 are continuous and without gaps. When we examine other genealogies in the Bible, we find that they frequently omit generations. Additionally, even a basic analysis of the relevant Hebrew verb indicates that it can be used to, de- to, excuse me, used to describe descent generally and does not necessarily refer to single-generation parent-child relationships. Establishing that there is no default reason to assume that the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 are without gaps does not necessarily entail, though, that there are gaps. But we do have reasons to suspect gaps in these genealogies. One such reason we've already mentioned this morning, and that is the parallels in the structures of the genealogies. As we've noted, these genealogies are similar in structure. Now, I know that when you see this slide, your brain automatically goes to this. But 
I promise this isn't some crazy conspiracy theory. Um, I can explain all of this, probably. Oh, and I see that some of the changes I made to this did not save. Oh, well, um, not a big deal. So returning to our genealogies, comparing them, we find that Noah is the 10th from Adam, and Terah is the 10th from Noah. Each genealogy ends with the father having three sons, as does the genealogy of Cain's line in Genesis 4. The seventh member of the genealogy in Genesis 5 is Enoch, who we are told walked faithfully with God and then was no more because God took him. In contrast, the seventh member of the genealogy of Cain's line in Genesis 4 is Lamech, who engages in polygamy, kills a man in revenge, and then boasts about it. It seems we have a clear contrast there. Peleg is the fifth member of the genealogy in Genesis 11, uh, which, if you'll notice, he appears to be sixth there. Noah should not be there at the top. Um, uh, and, but anyways, I'm sorry. That update did not save. Um, Peleg is the fifth member of the genealogy in Genesis 11, which by math means that the genealogy divides evenly after him. And this is notable because the name Peleg means division, and we are told in Genesis 10.25 that Peleg was so named because in his time the earth was divided. So we have some interesting structural features and parallels between these genealogies. It's possible that these are all coincidental, but as we saw earlier when we talked about Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, in order to preserve the three sets of 14 generations structure, Matthew omits four generations that we know of. And it is plausible, I think, that something similar is happening here. Professor Green agrees, writing, It seems in the highest degree probable that the symmetry of these primitive genealogies is artificial rather than natural. It is much more likely that this definite number of names fitting into a regular scheme has been selected as sufficiently representing the periods to which they belong, than that all these striking numerical coincidences should have happened to occur in these successive instances, end quote. Positing that the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 are without gaps has some other interesting consequences. For example, looking at the genealogy in Genesis 5 and doing the math, we find that Methuselah probably died in Noah's flood, or at least died the year of Noah's flood. Likewise, when we look at Genesis 11, we find that Peleg, the representative of the fifth generation from Noah, died while all of his ancestors from Noah onward were still living. This means that the funeral for Peleg, conceivably among the attendees, would have been his father, his grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, and great-great-great-grandfather. We find something similar when we consider the story of Abraham. Professor Green writes, the whole impression of the narrative in Abraham's days is that the flood was an event long since past and that the actors in it had passed away ages before. I think we could all agree with this statement. Nowhere in reading the story of Abraham do we get the impression that he is living in the shadow, the literal shadow, of people who saw the flood with their own eyes. And yet, if the genealogy in Genesis 11 is without gaps, this would have been the case. In fact, if the genealogy is without gaps, Noah would have still been alive for the first 58 years of Abraham's life, and Shem would have outlived Abraham by 35 years. Imagine being Shem and outliving your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. Right. Finally, we have extra-biblical reasons to believe that there are gaps in these genealogies. 
If the genealogy in Genesis 11 does not skip any generations, then we can date Noah's flood to around 2543 BC. This date is virtually impossible to square with historical records and archeological data. A worldwide flood circa 2543 BC would mean a complete eradication and almost instantaneous rebirth of a number of ancient Near Eastern cultures and civilizations, including Egypt and Sumer. Now, in response, one could maintain that the flood was not in fact worldwide, but was regional or local, so local that the Egyptian and Sumerian people were not impacted by it, or were only marginally impacted. The question then becomes whether such a flood fits with the biblical account. I'll leave that for you to decide. However, I will suggest that it seems to me that the much more likely conclusion is simply that the genealogy of Genesis 11 is not continuous. It's also worth noting the irony here, inasmuch as many of the folks who are most insistent that there cannot be any gaps in these genealogies, for instance, Ken Ham and other folks at Answers in Genesis, are equally insistent that Noah's flood must have been a worldwide flood. It does not appear that there's any way that we can square these two things. All right, let's recap really briefly. We have seen that biblical genealogies frequently are not continuous and contain gaps. Additionally, we have seen that there is significant biblical and extra-biblical evidence that suggests the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 do in fact contain gaps. At this point, I want to address a few questions that I anticipate people may have. Question one, does positing that the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 contain gaps raise questions regarding the inerrancy of scripture? Answer, no. <laughs> Our discussion this morning does not call into question the inerrancy of scripture. In order to see this, it may be helpful to remind ourselves what the doctrine of inerrancy entails. Consider the following definition of inerrancy from Paul Feinberg, longtime professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He writes, inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social physical, or life sciences. Notice again the middle part of that statement. The scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm. What this means is that inerrancy only applies if or when we are correctly understanding what a particular passage is saying. And that is exactly what our discussion this morning has been about. The evidence we've looked at does not suggest that the author of Genesis, who I think we would all believe to be Moses, made a mistake in recording the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11. Rather, it suggests that we have made a mistake in our interpretation of these genealogies by supposing that Moses intended to communicate that they are without gaps. My argument this morning is that Genesis 5 and 11 are not actually affirming that there were only 10 generations between Adam and Noah and another 10 generations between Noah and Abraham. The issue is not that scripture is wrong, it is that we have misunderstood it. An example may help to clarify this. Consider Joshua 10, verses 12 and 13. You all know the story here. Joshua and the Israelites are engaged in battle with five kings of the Amorites, and daylight is running out. So jumping to those verses, we read, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as is written in the book of Jashar. 
the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. Verse 13 here specifically says that the sun delayed going down. However, as we all know, the sun does not rise and set. Rather, the appearance of the rising and setting of the sun is caused by the rotation of the earth. Does this mean that this verse contains a mistake and that therefore scripture cannot be inerrant? I don't think so. Presumably you don't either. As before, the relevant issue is what these verses are actually affirming. I submit the biblical author here is not intending to affirm a geocentric universe. Rather, he's simply describing what happened as it appeared to him. Likewise, in Genesis 5 and 11, Moses is not affirming that each individual is the direct father of the person he is said to have begotten. Thus, if it should turn out that there are gaps between generations in these genealogies, this would not constitute an error in the biblical material. All right, let's jump to our second question, which is related. I would frame it something like this. If we are positing gaps in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, does that mean we are denying the literal meaning of these passages? The short answer here is again, no. The slightly more nuanced answer is that it depends on what we think it means to read the Bible literally. Does reading the Bible literally mean we must read every passage in a wooden fashion that does not acknowledge that words can have multiple meanings? Or does it simply mean reading each passage in the manner intended by the author? I think another example will help here. Consider God's promise to Abraham, or technically Abram at this point, in Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. This promise is reiterated in similar language in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 4. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. So in these verses, God promises, respectively, to make Abraham into a great nation and to make him the father of many nations. Question, were these promises literally fulfilled? Did Abraham literally father many nations? Did God turn Abraham himself into a nation? You all know the story of Abraham. At any point in the story, does God zap Abraham and transform him from an individual human person into a nation? in a great nation at that. Um, likewise, at any point, does any wife of Abraham's give birth to even a single nation, let alone many nations? Can we even imagine what it would be like to be pregnant with a nation? All right, so did God literally keep his promises to Abraham? Again, I think this depends on what we mean by literally. It's one of those squish words that gets thrown around a lot without much clarification. But clearly, in these verses, what God is promising is not to transform Abraham himself into a nation or that Abraham will have relations with his wife and the immediate offspring of that union will be a nation. Rather, God is using figures of speech to express to Abraham that he will have many descendants who will form nations. God kept that promise. If our conception of what it means to read the Bible literally is such that it will not allow for such an understanding of these verses, then I think it is obvious that it is not a helpful one. In light of this, I submit that a more helpful way to frame this question is not to ask, is this a literal reading of this passage, but rather to ask, 
Does this reading reflect the way the author intended the passage to be read? The authors of the Bible employ different literary genres and literary techniques, including metaphor, allegory, parables, and figures of speech. They also use words that have multiple meanings. The key to interpreting the Bible correctly is not to select always the most woodenly literal interpretation of a passage, but to examine the passage carefully to determine how the author intended it to be understood. In the case of the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, we have examined the biblical evidence, and we have seen that it suggests that the author did not intend us to understand these genealogies as continuous and without gaps. And we've seen that this understanding is perfectly consistent with the semantic range of the relevant Hebrew verb. To object to this view on the grounds that it is not literal enough is simply to misunderstand the purpose of hermeneutics. All right, let's move on to our final question. What about the ages that are included in the genealogies? What is the point of including the ages if there are no gaps in the genealogies, or excuse me, if there are gaps in the genealogies? If there are gaps in the genealogies, what do the ages even mean? As we noted when we briefly examined the structure of these two genealogies, for each person listed, we are told his age when he fathered the next person listed, as well as the number of additional years he lived after that. In the Genesis 5 genealogy, these two numbers are then summed for us to give us the total years of that person's life. On the face of it, the presence of these age data seem problematic for the view I just laid out. After all, why would Moses include the ages, especially the age of each man when he fathered the next person in the genealogy, if the next person in the genealogy was not his immediate son? Professor Green sums this question up well, writing this. Do not the chronological statements introduced in these genealogies oblige us to regard them as necessarily continuous? Why should the author be so particular to state, in every case, with unfailing regularity, the age of each patriarch at the birth of his son, unless it was his design thus to construct a chronology of the entire period and to, for and to afford his readers the necessary elements for a computation of the interval from creation to the deluge and from the deluge to, at, excuse me, to Abraham? And if this was his design, he must, of course, have aimed to make his list complete. What Green is saying here is that, to our modern ears, the inclusion of the age of each man in the genealogy when he fathered the next person listed suggests that Moses wants us to be able to add up the ages in order to compute the dates of the events of early Genesis, like the flood or creation. But in order for this to work, Moses must not have omitted any links in the genealogical chain. If he did, then the ages are completely unhelpful from a dating perspective. Therefore, the argument goes, the, the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 must be without gaps. We should note that Professor Green does not actually agree with this position. In the quote I just read, he is summarizing the objection antecedent to answering it. So in response, I think we must ask whether it is fair for us to assume that Moses intended for us to use the genealogies to date events like creation or the flood. After all, nowhere does Moses add up the ages to arrive at dates for the events of early Genesis. And significantly, not only does Moses not do this, neither does any other biblical writer. In light of this, I think we have to be very, very hesitant before we suggest that the ages are included in the genealogies for dating purposes, or that the presence of the ages serves as a strong rebuttal to the view that there are gaps in the genealogies. 
Note also that if Moses' reason for including the ages was to allow us to date events like creation or the flood, there would be no reason for him to include the total years that each person lived. These numbers don't contribute to our ability to date any of the events of early Genesis. At risk of overstating this point, we need to be really, really careful when it comes to making assumptions about what a biblical author's purpose or intention must have been. This is especially the case when we're talking about a type of literature that we don't understand well, like ancient Near Eastern genealogies. We are not the original audience for which Moses constructed these genealogies. And just because we don't understand what significance the ages might have served to the original audience if the genealogies are not continuous does not mean that the ages had no significance or that the genealogies must therefore be continuous. So the answer to our question here about the ages is, I submit, that we don't know. However, we do have examples from other documents from the ancient Near East that may provide some insight on this question. We have ancient king lists from Babylonia and Samaria that state the reigns of individual kings as fantastically long, in some cases over 43,000 years. The Sumerian king list includes eight kings that, between them, are stated to have reigned for 241,200 years, which puts the average length of rule for each of these kings at 30,150 years. Now, the Sumerians and Babylonians weren't idiots. They knew that people didn't live for tens of thousands of years. Quite clearly then, they did not take these reported lengths seriously, or literally, I should say, excuse me. But it is also quite clear that these fantastically large numbers must have served some purpose. It may be beyond the power of our present historical understanding to determine what that purpose was, but it must have existed, or else there would have been no reason to record these outrageously large numbers. And I would suggest that perhaps something similar is going on with the ages recorded in these genealogies. Is it possible that, like the lengths of rule recorded in ancient king lists, the ages recorded in these genealogies were not meant to be taken literally and that this would have been understood by the original audience? I think it is possible. Please note, I'm not saying that this is in fact the case or even that it is likely. I'm simply saying I think it's a possibility. However strange such a suggestion may seem to us, we must again recall that we are not the original audience and that our expectations and requirements for genealogies are certainly not the same as those of the original audience. All right, let's recap. Our modern understanding of genealogies notwithstanding, we have good reasons to believe that the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 contain gaps. When we look at other biblical genealogies, we find that they do generally contain gaps between generations, and that as a result, there should be no a priori assumption that biblical genealogies are continuous. Additionally, the relevant Hebrew verb can be used of descent generally and does not necessarily refer to parent-child relationships. We looked at positive evidence for gaps in these genealogies, including symmetries in the structure of the genealogies, counterintuitive dating implications if the genealogies are continuous, and the difficulty of squaring a flood anything like the one described in Genesis in roughly the year 2543 BC with historical data. We then considered questions relating to inerrancy, reading the Bible literally, and the presence of ages in the genealogies, and I argued that none of these poses an insurmountable difficulty for the view that there are gaps in these genealogies. So what significance does this have for us? 
One very obvious implication is that we should refrain from using the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 to try to date the events of early Genesis, and we should be very skeptical of the many attempts that have been made to do exactly this. People have been trying to use these genealogies to date things like creation and the flood for at least hundreds of years. Not to mention but one example, which I'm sure many of you are aware of. In the 1600s, a bishop named James Usher used these genealogies together with other biblical passages to date creation, the creation of the universe, to October 23rd, 4004 BC. I'm really not sure how he arrived at the exact day, but, um, but with all due respect to Bishop Usher and everyone else who's done the same thing, I think these dates rely on assumptions that we are not justified in making. I'll quote one more time from Professor Green. He concludes the paper I referenced earlier with these words. We conclude that the scriptures furnish no data for a chronological computation prior to the life of Abraham and that the Mosaic records do not fix and were not intended to fix precise dates of either the flood or of the creation of the world. His Princeton contemporary, theologian B.B. Warfield, concurs, writing in a paper on a related topic, it is precarious in the highest degree to draw chronological inferences from genealogical tables. But even more importantly than this, I think the material we've looked at today underscores the importance of hermeneutics and of being cautious of the assumptions we bring to our understanding of Scripture. Rather than making assumptions about what a passage means, we must try to set aside our predispositions and allow ourselves to be guided by the evidence of Scripture. This is not an easy thing to do. We make assumptions about things all of the time, usually without even realizing it. Most of, this t most of the time this works out for us, but sometimes it gets us into trouble. All of you men who are married know exactly what I'm talking about. When your wife says she's fine, she's never actually fine, is she? And we've probably all made that mistake at least once. When it comes to interpreting scripture, if unchecked, our assumptions will eventually get us into trouble. Anytime we are misunderstanding or, or misrepresenting God's word, that is a problem. However, there's an additional danger here. Overly facile understandings of scripture are vulnerable to being exposed by, as false by those who are able to spot our mistaken assumptions. And this can leave us in a precarious position. If, because of our unconscious assumptions, we are unable to distinguish between the integrity of Scripture itself and the integrity of our interpretation of it, we may be left questioning whether we can trust the Bible at all. We can probably all think of people who have had their faith shaken or even shipwrecked in this manner. We must be very intentional about the way we read and study Scripture to try to avoid this. And I will readily acknowledge that I'm not great about recognizing and setting aside the assumptions I bring to my understanding of Scripture. I grew up in this church and was taught hermeneutics from an early age, but it was only in the last several years after I heard it mentioned by someone else that it occurred to me that the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 might contain gaps and might not be continuous. I had always just assumed that. So don't be like me. Be better. When it comes to interpreting Scripture... Let's not be Dr. Watson. Let's be Sherlock Holmes. Well, thank you, Josh, for leading us through that study. It was clear and helpful and insightful into a part of Scripture that we 
might sometimes be tempted to, uh, to skip over for any variety of reasons. Uh, I've been uh, studying the genealogies to some extent in seminary, and as such, I very much appreciated the points that Josh brought up, all points uh, which I believe um, not only promote the historicity and reliability of Scripture, especially when interpreted carefully and rightly, uh, but also give us insight into how God has worked through history and into the wisdom of his special and progressive revelation. And uh, maybe, you know, most importantly of all, uh, studies like these help us to, uh, help us to better understand um, how Scripture, in all of its various forms, accomplishes what God intends for it to accomplish. Amen? Let's stand together, and I'll read from 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. Be joyful, grow to maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace. Then the God of love and peace will be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.